0: This week on Dig Me Out With your hosts Jason Zia and Tim Minichi
1: Jay this week we are back with our final round table of 2017 it is our in the 90s episode that we promised way back in January when a gentleman who won a Patreon contest or giveaway I guess it's not really a contest nothing's contested just a giveaway we just give stuff away because we're like that and uh, Chris Martz who is joining us tonight welcome Chris hey guys Uh, hey you were with us and uh, we we said Chris, you get to pick a round table and what did you pick?
2: I chose one of the biggest bands of all time kiss
1: That's right we're doing kiss in the 90s. We're gonna track the career of kiss through the decade. We've done this before uh, the first one was Van Halen. That was a lively episode. We learned lots of stuff about Van Halen and also that chip midnight stopped listening to Van Halen and it was uh, <laughs> a revelation. We, and started,
0: then, <laughs> we started the, the roundtable by learning that Chip hadn't listened to Van Halen from 1990 to the year 2000.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, and ha- had just picked up Van Halen 3 the week before. <laughs> and, as a used, so before a used we studio. start tonight, I want
0: to make sure everybody here has actually heard of the band Kiss.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've also done these on Metallica, Tom Petty, and Duran Duran. So it's basically the setup is a band that was hugely successful in either the 80s or the 70s and 80s and then we talk about how the trajectory of the band may have changed or altered or what significant events happened in the 90s based on the shifting musical landscape that was occurring and we talk about whether or not the band survived the 90s if they came out stronger if they wilted and and died if it was self-inflicted or if the alternative and grunge, whatever you want to call it, uh, music scene, devoured them and spit them out and chewed them up and whatever. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Joining us along with Chris, a returning guest, he was just here like a month ago, Joe Royland, Welcome back.
3: Hey, guys. Great to be back. Thanks for having me back.
1: People can go to uh, Sit and Spin with Joe at all the various uh, places, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, your show, and Chris, do you have anything you want to plug, or you good?
2: Nah, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty much working all the time, so I don't have time for anything <laughs> uh, that I put out on the internet as far well, so. You're
1: probably best to, to not do that, <laughs> because uh, uh, then somebody will have an opinion about it and, and, and write you negative comments, and then you'll <laughs> just feel bad anyways. Exactly. So, so Jay, we're doing another month with uh, Sudio, where uh, instead of working with the Regent, we're working on the uh, working with the studio Tray, I believe is how it's pronounced, T-R-E, which are the uh, inner ear headphones. And we're going to mm-hmm. be talking about those later. I'm interested uh, to try out these new pair. Are you as well?
0: Definitely. I'm always up for a new pair of headphones.
1: Yeah. So we'll be getting into that in just a little bit, but we're going to uh, gauge our how much history each of us know? Our kiss credentials. Our kiss credentials, because I might be the least knowledgeable person when it comes to Kiss, uh, out of everybody. So this will be an education for me as as much as the audience. I'll be at, I'll be the stand in uh, for the audience in this episode because I'm going to be completely honest. I didn't buy a Kiss record un- <laughs> until the Unplugged album came out in. Uh, Nineteen ninety, um, was it six
3: 96 of the album came out yeah. yeah the show the actual airing of the show was in 95
1: right that was my first purchase of a kiss album and then i got the double platinum after that the greatest hits or one of the m- many greatest hits that they've put out but i bought that on cd i've now purchased a lot of old kiss on vinyl and actually have a few cassettes as well i think i have uh animalize on cassette but yeah i i didn't i wasn't really huge into kiss as as a teenager or a kid growing up so i want to ask chris what's your personal history with the band i'm just gonna keep using that
2: (laughs) well uh i got into them in the 90s uh probably like 94 95 early high school for me and um, I don't remember the first album that I bought, but I'm pretty sure that it had something to do with uh, Columbia House or BMG when you got all those free CDs and just ch- uh, checking them off the list. Hey, what would I like? And I don't remember which kiss album I got, but started to build the, the back catalog in the 90s and, and pretty much fell in love with them and then the uh, I, I was pretty weird. So when the reunion did happen, that's when I pretty much fell off. Uh, because I liked the fact that I was listening to this band and uh, pretty much everybody had forgotten about them. Then they come back and uh, everybody cared all of a sudden. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to drop out, so I'll see you guys later. But I still kept <laughs> listening to them. <laughs> yeah, but I, still, I mean, I still kept all the albums and listening to them over the years. And, you know.
1: All right. So, Joe, when did you start listening to KISS?
3: Oh, okay. Now I'm going to date myself because uh, I've been listening to Kiss since the '70s. Uh, probably the first album I bought with my own money was Kiss Destroyer at an actual Rocksteady Records in Merrillville, Indiana. Uh, but of course, it was probably a few years after the record came out. It was like '77 uh, when I when I bought that record, and that, yeah, it was the first. Al- and I've been a fan ever since.
0: So.
1: Okay. And Jay?
0: Um, it would have been 78 or 79. My older brothers had a live, a live two, Destroyer, Love Gun. So I just remember being a little kid, and that was really the how I learned about rock and roll, flipping through those album covers. Okay. And I bought the, I got the Ace Fraley solo album as my first record ever. And oh. then, um. Yeah, I pretty much kept track of the band off and on through the 80s, and seen I've seen them three times live. I saw them on the hotter, Hot in the Shade tour, the Revenge tour, and the Reunion tour.
1: Okay. So a late addition. Joining us, our third guest, with after a little bit of uh, technical issues, uh, from the Bay Area, Mr. Julian Gill, the man who runs KissFAQ.com. Written a number of KISS books uh, and runs and has a podcast about KISS. Welcome, Julian, to the show. Thanks for uh, finally getting everything booted up.
4: Well, you know, thank you very much for your patience. And I apologize for all of those accusations that you just threw at me for things that I've done online. <laughs> it's not my fault, it was someone else.
1: <laughs>
4: nice. So we were just
1: talking in the intro here about when we all first discovered KISS. Myself, I didn't get into them until the 90s. Uh, Same with Chris, but um, Jay and Joe both got into them into the 70s. When did you first discover Kiss? Was there a particular album or era that you got interested in the band?
4: You know, people make fun of me for this, but, uh, you know, in the 70s, I was in England, so Kiss didn't resonate in 1985 there are some wonderful videos on mtv called uh Uh, all night tears are falling and later who wants to be lonely i got into the band with asylum
1: interesting all right so right in the middle perfect
4: well well crazy nights definitely re
0: um reintroduced me to the band because i lost them a little bit in the 80s so i can relate to that
1: so i want to walk through um the 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 late 80s where the band was at entering into the 90s so they had released hot in the shade in october of 89 and at just at the beginning of the 90s scored a pretty big hit with forever but it's going back and looking at the history um it seemed like the band was sort of sputtering a little bit there was like i was reading about um like Paul getting injured on stage and then there was like a car accident and they were canceling lots of shows. And it seemed like there was um, some, just like the the band was not firing on, on all cylinders at that point. The One of the other singles that was released for that record. Hot in the Shade. Off, off of Hot in the Shade, um, Hide Your Heart, that didn't chart very well, at least not as well as uh, as being the, the first single and then forever being the second single. So I want to start with you Julian just going starting with the band entering into the new decade. Um is it safe to say that they were on a little bit of like shaky ground with regards to where they were in the musical landscape?
4: For for my taste, they had uh, made a massive step of correction because uh, Crazy Nights was them just being something completely that I hated. I, I didn't okay. like the kind of the pop direction that they went. So with Hot in the Shade, they went back kind of into the rough, the raw, and yeah, it's got too many songs in it. And Hide Your Heart was you know just released by too many people at the same times. But they were correcting. They were they were getting back to kind of the music, kind of more hard rock and re you know regaining an identity musically that they'd lost with the glam of the mid 80s and trying to be twisted sister or bon jovi or motley Crue, and following all those trends
0: yeah and i think it's worth noting that um the first video from that record features gene and paul in makeup which was pretty amazing at the time i don't i i remember at the right before that happened never thinking that would ever occur again so the fact that they did a video and they put the makeup back on and were starting to sort of recognize their past which most of the 80s i felt like they were so consumed with trying to chase bon jovi and def leppard and those sorts of bands that they sort of forgot who they were and that was the first time that they kind of acknowledged it in a very you know overt way so i I, i'm with the with julian in that they were trying to it seemed like trying to course correct. And I'm not sure they knew exactly where to go, but, um, they were back to sort of being more of a hard rock band and trying to be a little less pop. Okay. Um, the stage show for that tour too, was pretty big from production standpoint, you know, through a lot of the eighties, they started to really scale things down and they at least tried to go back to like doing a big arena show, um, and, and try to spend some money on production and, um
4: as well yeah it, it it totally changed right towards the end there as you say with the hot in the shade tour you get leon you get a massive production where the in the 80s the shows got shorter uh, the sets got you know shorter, the logo got bigger, and that was about it. All of a sudden, you've got Leon back. Tail end of the Crazy Night Store, they kind of brought started bringing back songs from the 70s as well. So there was the adjustment starts just at the end there. They'd gotten down to, I think, 370 songs in the set at one point, which just would have boggled the mind if I had been a fan in the 70s and gone to a kiss show and only heard three makeup songs, and the rest of it's all from the 80s. So. Buy Hot in the Shade, in comes the legacy, perfectly married to a certain extent with the 80s stuff that should have stayed in the set, did stay. The stuff that needed to be discarded, that was just basically garbage, they got rid of. And they actually had a set that worked, a set that looked like a KISS set, and and, uh, a band on stage that was, you know, they, they took the tempo back down and corrected the stuff. I mean, they'd been like chipmunks in the 80s performing some of that 70s stuff. It was just completely wrong.
3: Yeah, that was what I was going to mention, too, is the set list for the Hot in the Shade tour was exceptional. It was the best set list they'd had, as Julian said, in quite some time. And I saw them twice on that tour, and it was just great hearing all these old songs that you hadn't heard Kiss play in years, and they're bringing them back out again. It was really pretty sweet.
1: Okay. I guess I was, in terms of the overall, it seemed like, the first, like the singles, did not, or, or at least, Hide Your Heart did not chart the way that they were expecting. And then with, the, it seems like those those first two years of the of the decade are, you know, they, they're going in the wrong direction. Whereas when they hit ninety two, Revenge actually charts incredibly well, and I think it's the best charting album since like the early 80s or even maybe even be before before late... dynasty okay yeah. yeah it seemed like in in terms of also their number of uh singles that were released off of that record you know hot in the shade had basically like three song three radio singles with hide your heart forever and rise to it and then i uh, maybe it was the inclusion of the song on the bill and ted soundtrack that helped but it they did manage to get you know unholy and then domino uh, which i listening to domino now i cannot believe that that was on the radio <laughs> <laughs> uh but then I and, I and i just wanna i mean those there's quite a number of singles off that record which again this came out in 92 so we're talking about post nevermind which is another interesting aspect of that record and i, I personally i don't I don't remember when it came out, but now it's actually like, I think one of my favorite records of theirs. I'm curious as to, um, where you guys think that that record falls, not just in terms of comparison to hot in the shade, but also just in terms of the overall, uh, output of the band. I'll start with you, Chris, since, uh, you were just getting into kiss in the, in the nineties, was it, was it on revenge or, or, or was it one of the seventies albums?
2: It I'm, I think it was one of the '70s albums, but having Revenge around as the the newest title was a little bit different because it did seem like they you know because the whole music the rock music scene totally changed obviously with Nirvana and the whole grunge movement coming out. So for them to come out with Revenge seemed okay. They're trying to answer this trend a little bit, but not over the top as they might have later on with Carnival of Souls, you know with with revenge, they they brought back Bob Ezrin as the producer, and then they even brought back uh, Benny Vincent to help them write some songs for it. So they did have a little bit of nostalgia going as uh, that direction, but kind of a modern take on it as well. So you know, Gene grew facial hair. They started wearing black clothes, leather, like like dark. Just their their imagery really got a lot darker, as opposed to you know these. Uh, you know, the white makeup from the the 70s. But, you know, it was was definitely a different step forward, but it was another step forward that I I did like it back then.
1: Okay. Jade, I don't remember. So I know that you, you know, you said you've gone through sort of periods with being disconnected and then reconnecting. Did you get Revenge when it came out?
0: Oh, yeah. By this time, so by Crazy Nights, I'm fully 100% back into the band. It was really between probably... 80 and was it 85 86 that I was not as uh connected but by this point I I mean they're they're my favorite band it's it's them and Van Halen all day um so uh I did get this when it came out I remember Unholy debuting on Headbangers Ball and just being just blown away like I literally picked up the phone and 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 called somebody and said like we both just freaked out. Like, oh my God, Kiss is back! Like, this is the band that we had wanting, been wanting them to be for, you know, five years or, or, or however long, and they're they're finally back. And and I related it more to like, you no, know, they were going back to that black and white and silver kind of image, but in, but without the makeup, which was kind of a cool idea. And then musically, you know, and Holy with the with the tune down uh, riff it really made me think okay they're going to go and kind of a cuz metal was still you know even though alternative was happening like pantera was still huge at this time and they're getting more popular so there's this metal sound that's emerging with the you know tuned down guitars obviously here in alternative rock and i just thought when i heard unholy of like wow they're really going to reinvent this band and like go in this direction rest of the record as i got into it i think i i liked at the time quite a bit looking back i think listening to other kiss fans talk about it i think i let unholy kind of color the entire record for me because if i take that song off it's not nearly as good of a record um as i remember it being I, i think it's you know half and half i think there's some stuff on there that's really really strong and there's some other stuff that's like domino and i just wanna that i don't know maybe because they were played so much at the time but um they don't hold up quite as well for me anymore
1: joe what about you where, where do you fall on this record
3: i fall in when when revenge came out i i'm in the same boat as jay i was loving it it was kiss kind of getting back to basics uh i absolutely adored the album when it came out but kind of now in hindsight it doesn't hold up as well as it did then so I'm, I'm pretty much in exactly the same boat as jay on this one
1: interesting okay i guess my uh my appreciation for appreciation for it is uh not as universally uh uh received as i thought it would be i guess it's because i i like the darker
0: aspect of it i don't know um <laughs> Yeah, and I think uh, it is darker musically, but I think lyrically and from a songwriting standpoint, it just doesn't quite get there on en- enough. Like a song like uh, Tough Love, I think, is a, an amazing verse and great riff. And then when you get to the chorus, you're like, well, this chorus is as lazy as something they would have written in the 80s. Like this isn't any any different, you know what I mean? Um, where, uh, But then you have a song like Paralyzed, which I think is great. Um so you know and Unholy's great and there's a couple other God gave rock and roll to you is 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 a pretty cool cover. Um so there's there's moments here and there and overall the production is fantastic. I mean Bob Ezrin does a great job. It's engineered amazing. It's you know the best sounding record they had done since probably The Elder. Um or I'm sorry Creatures of the Night. Um so from a production standpoint it's it's all there. Um, it's just I think the songs, some of them are aren't that much if you're if you're saying that these are like darker songs than what you would have heard on say Asylum, I'm not sure or, or animalized. I'm not sure that consistently they are. I think some are just pretty typical kiss songs.
1: Jay, we're going to take a minute out here and just talk about uh, the Studio Trey headphones. We're going to be talking about them this month for our final uh, month of the year, December. Each week, we're going to be talking about a different aspect of these headphones. And we we just got these right before Thanksgiving, so we've had a couple weeks to try them out. And uh, like with the Regent packaging, it's a really nice, like, sturdy uh, packaging that they come in with this uh, yeah.
0: box. I'm always impressed, like how nice packaging is now like <laughs> yeah it's 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 nice if you're gonna give these as a gift too you're not giving people like these like remember the old shrink-wrapped plastic containers oh, yeah. everything came in and it just made everything feel cheap whereas right. this is like a we got a really nice like um almost like a book fold that you open up and yeah yeah, it's a, it's multiple
1: a, compartments in there, and then and you get like a um, there's a leather case that it comes with for you to store. There's so there's three different sizes of the what actually you place in your ear. Yeah, um, with a little it's your normal like I guess you'd say your little you know the thing that sticks in your canal, and then there's also a rounded tip that sort of wraps around um, the inner part of your ear, and that's what's the different size is. Uh, the length of that curve is a little bit different. So you can place those extra ones in the uh, leather case when you're not using them along with the headphones, if you like. Uh, yeah. So if,
0: if you imagine like the headphones that come with your iPhone, yeah, the
1: earbuds. they're kind of like that. Yeah. But
0: instead of that hard plastic, they replace it with a softer like rubber material. Yeah. And then, like you said you've got different sizes you can pick to fit your your size so when you put them in there one you want to make sure that when you use in-airs that you've got a really good fit because that's going to affect the sound quite a bit um if they're loose or not or or kind of too tight they're either going to sound like too compressed or like not enough bass um if they're too loose yeah yeah it's really nice that they come with all those different sizes because i had never used used in ears like this before i've used different styles like i've used foam and i've just used like the earbud style that just kind of like sit in your ear but right um this is the first time i've ever had with that little adapter piece that really locks in there
1: yeah and we'll get into it more as we talk through you know using them more but um i use I, i have used the 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 earbuds that come with the iphone um when i like mow the lawn Mm. And mm. one of the issues I would have is that when my you know as I'm walking and it's like 90 degrees outside my ears would get sweaty and the earbuds because yeah. they're plastic they just fall out.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and they have, they hurt after a while.
1: And they hurt, well yeah, but they also fall out. Yeah. The nice thing is because this is a like slightly different material they they don't have that same slickness. Yeah. So when I was like I didn't mow the lawn in these, but I went to the grocery store because I wanted to try out just, like, walking around. And yep. even with um, uh, just walking around, you know, pushing a cart around the grocery store, which is not dissimilar from pushing a, you know, a, a powered mower around the backyard, um, these did not jostle. They didn't come out, yeah.
0: which was nice. Yeah, I, I noticed it, too. I mean, once you get them in there, they lock in, but they're not... um I mean, you know, they're there, but they're not like the earbuds that come with your phone that, yeah, you no, know, for me, those become painful after an hour or so. Like I have to take them out. They just, they don't fit my ears right. Yeah. Whereas these were really comfortable and then they're wireless. We should mention, mention. Oh yeah, right? they're Bluetooth. So um, if you've seen some of the like AirPods and some of the others, there's two separate headphones, which. You run the risk of losing one of those yeah, whereas this is they're strung together with a with a flat really soft flat cord, so it keeps them together it makes them easier to kind of like throw around your neck and carry around if you need to um, and then you've got controls right on the yeah um, we both got the weight right mm-hmm and then the all the the buttons are a like kind of a rose goldy color
1: yeah or they look copper. Really. it looks nice yeah uh, want to mention that if you The listener at home are interested in picking up a pair. You can go to studiosweden.com. You can check them out on Studio Sweden on Facebook and Instagram. And you can use the dig me out code uh, for 15% off your purchase. That's it's a one word dig me out 15. It'll be on the website as well as a link. Yeah, so we'll get more into the the actual uh, audio and and some of the other stuff uh, in future uh, episodes but we should get back into our discussion uh with our roundtable guests on kiss So let me ask you guys, and I'll I'll start with Julian. The thing I I realized that I skipped over was there was a change in the band. Eric Carr, who had been the drummer on the previous record, became ill. I believe it was was cancer, correct? And he ends up passing away and only ends up recording drums on like one song And then backing vocals on a song, and then Eric Singer becomes a drummer, and he does the drums for the majority of the record. Um, I'm wondering if, like, how that affected the band in terms of if it, even if it, or if it did, in terms of recording this record. I don't. I'm curious about that, Julian. If you have any insight on how that impacted the record and the band,
4: I I think you know the death of Eric Carr obviously was a a shock to Kiss fans. Uh, His death was overshadowed, obviously. Uh, more popularly by Freddie Mercury dying around the same time, but for 10-J. Kiss fans, yeah. Um, so it 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 was a, a stunning thing. I think it it's it, uh, made the band just more um, determined to continue on and to really get back to uh, trying to claw their way back up. I, I think it had a, a positive effect on them that they. You know, wanted to really let out a lot of energy and anger. And once they went in the studio with Bob, it kind of comes through. It's so aggressive. It's just so, um, so determined that, it, you know, it's, it's not surprising that it sounds the way it does in, in many, in many ways, even if, you know, for me, a lot of it is trite and, um, You know, I I was 20 at the time the album came out, and I didn't want to be 14 and like lyrics like this and spit or, you know, take it off. I, or I just want to, I was like, I was too cool for that at 20 years old. couldn't remember what it was like to be 14.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It
0: was, yeah, it was the Eric Carr thing was, it was weird because it's, I mean, remember we're pre internet. So I just remember reading somewhere like, oh, he's sick and it's, he's got cancer. Wow. Okay. And then all of a sudden, you know i think it was an mtv one of those mtv news breaks or whatever they came in and said he was dead and it was just like devastating because um, you don't didn't have any information leading up to that really other than one announcement that he was sick so um and then you know i think in hindsight reading about the what was going on with the band at the time he had a a kind of a I don't know how you would characterize it. I, the, my understanding of it is a difficult relationship with the band from time to time in terms of he had a, maybe some self-esteem issues and wanted to contribute more. And, you know, the history of Kiss is that on all these records, it's not the four people, it's not the four guys on the cover uh, playing all the music. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways uh, this record is no different in that, um, in that you've got different drummers and then sort of with Eric, passing away and, and eric singer coming in it's almost um at least in terms of the record you know because he hadn't played on a lot of them anyway or at least it was always mixed and who played in what so um it was very it was a very odd um time and looking back it's like you learn more and more about it because there was so such little information uh, available
3: Well, that was was the thing, too, is on Hot in the Shade, half those tracks, or maybe more, Julian could probably corroborate this, are drum machines. They're they're demos. They're not even Eric playing on. So that's given him some issues there, too. And uh, I I took Eric Carr's death kind of uh, hard, too, because I'd I'd met him on several occasions. Back in the the 80s and 90s, uh, I... God, I must have met. I probably saw Kiss. I don't know how many times I I went backstage and met them and talked to them at least a half a dozen times or more. And Eric was always a very personable guy. It got to the point where, like the Mercury label rep, uh, because I was working in a music store and writing for a music magazine at the time, um, he would always call me up and say, "Hey, you know, Kiss is coming to town. I'm going to be hanging out with Eric. You know," and he would even ask if it was I coming. You know he he had gotten to know me to that point so mm-hmm. and that's actually how i found out he died like that guy his name is chris billy he actually called me up and said hey i just wanted to let you know uh eric carr passed away so
0: and it, i mean if you think about it there weren't you know guys at that age and rock bands that were popular i mean i mean it's odd that he died the same day as freddie mercury but there wasn't somehow a lot of those guys you know were, were despite all the hard drinking and drugs and everything most of them stayed alive. I mean, Nick, he's six, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> like, yeah. Died twice, and he's still here. And somehow, I think that was what was so crazy about the Derek Carr thing, is that, I mean, he was such a nice guy, and, 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 you know, so down to earth, and you could tell, you know, wasn't into drugs and alcohol. Or, you know, I'm sure he drank, but he wasn't a big drug guy. And for him to die, of all people, it was just crazy.
3: Kind of unfair in a lot of ways, too. Yeah.
1: Right? One of the things that... Um, I noticed is it's it almost is like the band, you know, even though they had some success with this record with Revenge, they started going down a path of where they released the the Kiss Alive 3 album, which, you know, obviously that's not all actually alive or all alive. There's a lot (laughs) of like with the earlier records, Um, but it seemed like they were heading taking that like Jay, you mentioned like Unholy has a certain sound that's a little bit different than the rest of the record. And they were going to head down that direction with carnival souls. And then they just sort of, because of events that happen, I guess, you know, sort of organically, it doesn't seem as forced, but they ended up getting the original lineup back together um, to do the unplugged in 95. Now there's the, I'm skipping over. there's the live album. Then there's kiss my ass, the covers record, um, which we actually did a whole episode on that a few years back that people can go check out, but um, it seemed like they with the Carnival of Souls record, and I'm, I'm mentioning it out of order with the Kiss Unplugged, like they were fully, like ready to go in this really heavy and dark direction. But because of the Unplugged, and, and I want to make sure that I get it right, is it because of Unplugged that they ended up getting back together with with Peter and Ace, or was there stuff happening before that, or was it really just the Unplugged that um, got that reunion uh, rolling, uh, Julian. I'm going to ask you. Uh, you know, about I, d- that.
4: I, I think it was inevitable before then. You know, when they started seeing how the uh, Kiss expos were doing the conventions in the early '90s, and of course, uh, I think it was '94 Detroit that they raided to take back their their stuff. They started seeing the response to, you know, how things. How, how people were kind of looking back to that time and, and longing for it. They saw a revenge that they'd put blood, sweat, and tears into basically tank. It, it only scraped to gold. The tour got, you know, canceled early. Um, essentially, it only ran through December, and it was very up and down. And then they fall into that period of very up and down kind of activity. So the by the time they get to the convention, and they invite Peter out, you know, they're testing the waters early on with Peter first. And then, you know, they did try and get Ace out. And obviously, things do come around for the unplugged. And the response to that uh, was pretty, pretty clear in the eyes of those who uh, have the purse strings that they're not doing very well on the road by themselves. So uh, it, it was kind of the right time. So, you know, I, I say it starts, you know, back in the end of the Crazy Nights era when they start putting those classic songs back in and it's an inevitable path it seems
1: like there's definitely you know gene likes to position himself as you know there's that commerce and art are not separate from each other and um and that he's you know in addition to being a musician he's also a businessman and um it seemed like he should have come to this conclusion long before this i mean if there were you know, issues with regards to filling, filling seats at shows. But, and I don't know, was he just stubborn and not wanting to work with them again? Or what was the deal? Well,
0: he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't leading the band in the eighties. I mean, I think that's pretty well, you go back and read Paul's book. I mean, he's pretty clear about that, that Paul was really, he was the band in the eighties and Gene showed up with a couple songs on each record and did his thing and went out and did the tours it wasn't really till the nineties and I'm not sure why maybe his kids got older or I I don't know. I don't know why, but he took an interest in the band. It seemed again. And um, I think that's when you started to see some of the, the nods to the history and the set lists. And it wasn't just Paul wanting to do his own thing. It was sort of back to being a band a little bit more. And uh, that progression, seemed to start to occur at the same time that Gene kind of took interest. And I think some of his best material is on the the albums from the 90s. I mean, other than the 70s, I think in the 80s, a lot of his stuff was real, wasn't always the strongest. Um, I think he, you know, really stepped up his songwriting and even his playing um, in some cases uh, on the 90s stuff. So,
4: You know, one one thing that's worth mentioning is uh, Gene had basically failed at all his extracurricular activities by ninety two, you know That's he true. hadn't done he hadn't done well as an actor. He hadn't done well as a producer. I mean, look at the bands that he was producing. Look at this. and then he'd stop giving his songs away as well. He was giving so much of his material away and so much of his writing efforts to bands like Black and Blue and Keel. I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs>
0: That's right. Yeah, I forgot he had a record label, um, Simmons Records, and yeah, movies and all that. So yeah, he kind of ran out of other creative avenues and went back to kiss
4: put his energy back where it belonged with paul and, and then you yeah. suddenly see an explosion in kind of the merchandise starting again and the projects the kiss my ass the kiss tree
1: interesting now that you mention it i'm now realizing the first time i saw gene simmons was in the tom Selleck movie runaway <laughs> <laughs> he plays the villain um and it's like about like little robots like it's very it's very weird it's like yeah, it's, it's right not... up
4: there with Phantom of the Park. Yeah, it's
1: not good. It's not good. It's, it's better than Phantom of the Park, though. I'll give it that.
4: Yeah, that, that's. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so I mentioned in in the intro the where I actually bought my first. Although I'd heard Kiss at this point and and listened to, you know, various records, I actually had not bought a record up until buying the Unplugged record, which. Um, came out in 96, but the actual airing of that episode is in 95. And I remember watching that. I don't know why I, I was interested because I wasn't, a, you know, a diehard Kiss fan, but I think I was just watching all of the Unplugged because it was such a cool outlet for bands to to do their songs in a different way. And, you know, whether it was Eric Clapton or LL Cool J or Nirvana, they always seemed to do interesting performances. And sometimes they got released on cd and were pretty good but i was really interested really into that unplugged album and, and ended up getting it um so i'm curious you know what was the opinion of longtime kiss fans obviously there's the excitement of you know peter and ace coming out but just seeing the band you know featured on mtv like that which at that point mtv was at the height of their power of you know making bands uh you know into million selling you know artists and you know was it that this was you know going to sort of relaunch the band into the the mainstream of america or you know i'm just curious as to like where the the long-term fans fell on the the unplugged and and where that sits with the in the history of the band
0: i'll I'll be quick i mean a couple things one it was it was really cool because that unplugged Um, show featured all the members of the band. I mean, you got Bruce and Ace on the stage together, you got Peter and Eric on the stage together, and they just seemed to be really enjoying themselves. And the other thing that was weird, which was fun as fans, just to kind of see them with the makeup and the costumes off, and you just you got to appreciate the songs, uh, and they seemed to be really having fun. Um, I think, you know, in a weird way, it also represented maybe when they were they were most like i don't know credible or accepted um they've never been a band that critics love i mean that's they've always been more you know the a band for the the masses um or, or in hardcore rock fans but if it seemed like that that time that sort of 95 96 era right uh, starting with the unplugged up into the reunion is when they kind of were their most credible it seemed like You know, maybe because they got on MTV and they did the unplugged, and like they stripped down, and you could really appreciate the the quality of the songs. Um, And then the reunion tour hit; it was, in in some ways, maybe at their height in that regard.
1: Following up on that, where in terms of the you know the band getting back together for the reunion tour after this, where did where was the I guess, or how was the uh, you know I'm curious as to the Ace and Peter are not really members. They're, it seems like they were like contracted players. So was it Hunky Dory from the beginning that they were going to be back or cuz I was trying to figure out if in reading back like they were signed to like contracts. Like this has always just sort of been Paul and Gene's show. Um was because it seemed like um Like around this time I was reading where there were like issues with regards to there was like lawsuits going on with the label that like Peter was on outside of Kiss. And I'm just curious as to like, was the public face of like what was happening matching what was actually happening behind the scenes um, with regards to like, I guess, the legal and contractual aspect of what was going on with the band? Um Julian, I thought you might maybe have some insight as to, like, what was going on in terms of making this all happen.
4: What was what was going on to make it happen? A hell of a lot of torture and a lot of legal bills. Um, you know, you mentioned the Tony Nickel Tony Records uh, legal issue when basically Peter got poached back into the band. Uh, you got to remember that Peter Chris sold out his uh, share in the business in I think it was 1987 a settled out in '84, so neither they left the partnership; they were completely out. So yes, they came back as employees, and uh, and it was the the negotiations over the contract that uh, took quite a while to get sorted out. At least until I think it was uh, by late December, early January, and they signed up for five years in January of 1996. So there there was a lot of torture, and it wasn't clear it was going to happen and Gene and Paul were adamant that they were not coming back into the band as equal partners ever again. they had already been paid off. All the risk was being taken by Gene and Paul as the the sole proprietors of the band and its uh, property. So they made it very clear that, uh, you know, Ace and Peter were going to do what they were told, and to a certain extent, for the early part of the reunion, that certainly was the case.
1: And then what happens with... Bruce Kulik and Eric Singer, I mean, are they just, like, left out to dry at this point? Uh,
4: as, as, yeah, essentially, they were just, say, take a, a paid vacation, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Gene and Paul knew that it could all crash and burn very easily with either Ace or Peter or both of them. So they couldn't just jettison Bruce and Eric. And, you know, I think to a certain extent they tried to treat them as best they could under the circumstances, but there was no proper way to really deal with Bruce and Eric. They said, go out and do your own thing, you know, get out there musically. And they, they both went on tour um, doing their, uh, their thing for a while until august when they they quit the band they saw that it was actually working and that it was going to be quite a period of time until the reunion was over and it's been 20 years so far
0: so so help us uh with the timeline for carnival souls in that context because that record is they're working on that record right while they're negotiating this is that the way it's playing out
4: it, it, they pretty much work at the same time. Uh, the recording of Carnal of Souls runs right through uh, the end of that runs through the kind of negotiations for the reunion. So they, they keep working on the album. They, they started it. And, you know, obviously the record labels paid them in advance on it. So they keep going on the record. Again, it's all it's all backup plans. It's get the record done, and that's why not not a lot of attention is actually paid to that record in terms of its sound and everything, that it's kind of a hurried uh, affair. I'd say they're distracted by the the reunion and the prospects of that because, um, you know, in addition to the negotiations you can't be recording an album and actually functioning very well while you're dealing with all these bits of drama in the background so they finish up the album and you know the negotiations conclude around the same time as well in january of 96
0: bruce is doing a lot on that record as yeah. i've come to understand
4: bruce yeah. is insane on that record that is bruce's record
0: so chris i
1: want to ask you did you pick up uh carnival of souls when it came out
2: um, I don't even remember when it came out because it was one of those things where the, so many bootleg tapes were, were circulating in the, in the KISS community that, you know, if you knew somebody, you could just get a copy of it. And, um, I didn't, I didn't even pick it up. Uh, I didn't pick up the CD when it came out. Cause I mean, it, it never really grabbed my attention too much. And, you know, I'm sure that people who had the bootleg tape for a while, Said, "Oh, hey, I want to. I want to pick it up to see if they've actually cleaned it up a little bit or what it sounds like." But it, I never picked it up just because. I mean, it it still is. It's not one of my favorite records, to be honest with you. So it's just. I know that's probably going to disappoint some people who really, really like that album. But I just it never really grabbed my attention.
1: Yeah, I'm curious. As so, where do you guys land on that record? Because in terms of sounding different, I can't think of another record that sounds more different than what the band like normally sounds like. I mean, other than the elder, other than the elder. Yeah. (laughs) But even that has elements of like what kiss you, ex what you think kiss sounds like, but this, like you said, it's a Bruce record. I mean, there's almost nothing. There's no lineage (laughs) to, to most other kiss records. So, Joe, where where does it fall? Is it something? Is it a curiosity for you, or do you or you enjoy listening to it?
3: Oh, it's a curiosity for me. Um, I appreciate what they tried to do with it, but that is a record that I've gone back to time and time again, and I just can't get into it. It's not because the playing is the the musicianship is great, the, uh, but there's no the songs just kind of fall flat for me a bit. I mean, there's just nothing catchy there. They they were trying to go dark and deep. They straight up told Toby Wright, the producer, we want to sound like Alice in Chains. And, you know, I mean, I, I think the performances are great, but there's just nothing that grabs me about that album. And I have tried time and time and time again to try and get into it. And I just can't. There's nothing that sticks
1: with me from it. Jay, what about you?
0: I did get it when it came out. I'm trying to remember. Did it come out while they were on the tour? It came out in
1: ninety seven. Yeah, October ninety
0: seven. So were they done with the reunion tour?
3: Oh no, they were still in. there was like the second leg of the reunion tour at that.
0: Okay. Point.
4: Yeah, they, just, they were. They, they were actually in a gap. The reunion had ended in July of ninety seven. So okay. they started putting out the remasters, and they threw out Carnival of Souls it was in October of that okay. year. Okay.
0: So I was um, just getting. I'm trying to get back to what, like where where my mind was with with the band at that time. So I go to the reunion tour, and then. Um, when I get this record, I, I mean, obviously, when you go to the reunion tour, you're thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if these guys made another record? So when this came out, it was a little bit of a a, a left turn. Like, does this mean that they're not going to make a reunion record? Or what does this mean? Um, I wasn't aware of the, the demos that were all leaked um, at the time. I, I am obviously now. Um, I knew that they you know, were working on something. And then this sort of just appeared in a record store one day. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and the cover kind of looks like a bootleg cover, and it's 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 so strange. Um at the time I listened to it a little bit, I think I was so distracted by the reunion and so wanting to hear the original band that I really didn't give it a, a chance at the time. Going back and listening to it, um I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's I don't think some of it's as too far off from revenge. Um, I think a song like Master and Slave sounds like it could have been a revenge or a creatures of the night song. I think there's some other interesting things on there. Like I confess and I walk alone. Some of it is obviously blatantly trying to be Alice in change, which doesn't work as well, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's, there's a couple tunes on there. I like, I don't know that it's any worse or any better than, than, than psycho circus, which we're going to get to. But, um, Um, I, I don't hate it.
3: Like I, I can't say it's a bad album. I just, it just doesn't do anything for me personally. Yeah. You know? But I, otherwise, I agree. with pretty much again, I agree with what Jay just said. You know, I was, I was more caught up in the fact that the reunion was going on, and it was just kind of like, oh, who cares about this?
0: <laughs> gotcha.
3: <laughs> I was more excited about the remasters of the catalog coming out. To be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Same here.
1: So, Julian, is this essentially just a contractual obligation that they? had this done and they had to put out a record because they owed one to mercury and they had a finished record. But like Jay said, it just sort of appeared. It doesn't seem like there was, there was only one single put out and it doesn't well, seem there like two, the,
4: there, there were two singles actually. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, you know, first is jungle, which did incredibly well on radio. And then master of slave came out as the second single from it. You know, it wasn't just thrown out as, as a, you know, congrat. Uh, contractual obligation. It was thrown out there because it was circulating everywhere. They didn't want to put it out at all. They they facilitated on that. You know, one one week it had a release, next it didn't, and then it did finally come out. So it was something that they had to get out because there were basically, you know, dozens of bootlegs being pressed up from the, I remember getting it pretty soon after. Um, you know, the word that had been completed. And, you know, I'd listened to it a lot. I didn't listen to Soundgarden or Alice in Chains. So for me, it was something, you know, reasonably fresh at the time. It hasn't dated well. And and then I did promotion with uh, Phonogram in the UK for it. Uh, so it, it was put out to get it out. And as a stopgap measure, since the rest of the catalog was coming out as a remaster, I think they figured throw it out around the same time as that. And someone might pick it up uh, when they're picking up a new copy of Destroyer.
0: Uh, why is okay. it labeled why is it labeled the final sessions?
4: They wanted to make clear that it was the final sessions by that lineup of the band. That's the party line on it. It's got to be the the silliest idea to call it the final anything.
1: <laughs> well, there is a lot of finals that aren't really when it comes to this is band. That, so.
4: Well, it's like it's like calling a tour the farewell tour.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was the farewell for that lineup, I guess. That was that was about it. Um so Jay, you mentioned Psycho Circus. That comes out the following year, 1998, in September of '98. That comes out. Interesting about that record was that the album actually leaked online early, about a month early. And um, in going back and reading about it, I, I was actually curious if like that was they were upset about that, or if that wasn't like intentional to like build interest in the release of the record. Um, I I don't know if anybody actually knows how that got leaked or, or if it was intentional or not, but it was also, you know, it was, that was when kiss online was launched was in August of 98. um, When the record came out or just before the record came out, they also had uh, this first single psycho circus got, Apparently, some radio stations started playing it early, and they got the cease and desist letter. But it seemed like that helped build buzz for the record because they ended up it ended up selling pretty well. I mean, it's it went gold in the U.S., Canada, and Sweden, and ended up uh, with, with a number of singles. Um, I mean, it made it to number one in a couple of countries, and I think in terms of overall. Uh, and you can check me on this, Julian. But I think this sells pretty well compared to their recent output. Or am I off on that?
4: Yeah, it it, it sells slightly better. But you know, by that time, Kiss's uh, studio output was basically dead in the water um, in terms of sales. They were never going back to anything like they'd had in the seventies. And okay. I, I just I do want to mention that you you know the cease and desists. Uh, You know, that was a very popular promotional tool. Obviously, they'd done the exact same thing with Revenge when um, there were radio stations that started playing I Just Wanna early, and they got cease and desist, and they got some nice press out of it too. So the cynic in me always says to a certain extent it's uh, manufactured, but the online leak, I remember the site that that happened on was uh, most certainly not engineered because I, I don't think anyone at the record label would have known about MP3s or real audio. At that time, it took them... Well, they they still haven't gotten to grips so with it, have they?
0: And I think a lot of the the success or, the, or whatever success happened with this record, however you want to quantify that, had more to do with the tour than the record. I don't know. That's my belief. In terms of, I mean, that tour was that reunion tour was very successful. I mean, it really brought the band. I mean, they went on Grammys with Tupac to announce it. For Christ's sake. I mean, it was a big deal. Um. So, and it took them a long time to make this record. Relatively. I mean. Uh, so I think a lot of the, to me, a lot of the hype around it was, you know, that tour and then waiting for this to come come out and um, the anticipation of it. I mean, I think Psycho Circus is a, was a good lead single as well, um, but I don't know. I I remember it being one of the more or, or the most celebrated or promoted KISS records, um, at least from my history of the band, from specifically in the 90s. When it
1: came out. Wasn't this promoted as being it's the original four playing everything, but it's well, not really Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what not really, was really anticipating. At all. Yeah. So does does Peter Chris even play on this?
4: Yeah. He's uh on Into the Void.
1: Okay, so okay. One song. And then are there other there's other guitar players on this, right? It's not just Tommy
4: it's okay. yeah it's, it it it's Tommy it's Paul it's uh who knows who else we we know for for sure it's uh, most of it's Tommy
1: That, in terms of keeping secret who's playing and, un- and not crediting people, I mean, I'm sure they get paid, but is if everybody knows, if Kiss fans know, oh, well, that you know, it's not really Peter playing drums on most of the songs, it's you know, it's not really all the guitar parts aren't really all Ace and Paul. You know, we got Tommy and Bruce coming in and they're doing stuff. What is well, the logic behind? Not revealing all that stuff.
0: Well, I don't. Uh, I'll say at least a level of fan that I that I was. I didn't know at the time. I mean, I went into this thinking, "Oh, this is the four original members of the band," and you know, I had heard rumors, I guess, that you know, in the past they hadn't played on all the records. But I thought, I don't know. I bought into the okay, they're back together and they're really going to make a record together. So. When I heard it, I thought, hmm, that doesn't sound like Peter Chris playing drums.
3: Yeah, it was the same for me.
0: <laughs> Maybe he got better. I don't know. Maybe he's been <laughs> practicing for it. Um, now, you know, we know, I, I think with the benefit of the internet and the spread of information, it's much easier to know. And you kind of look back at it now, and you're like, how did I not know that? But I mean, I I, I sort of totally bought into it and they really haven't done that since. I mean, all the music they've made since has been the four members of the band, anything original at least, or, or close to it. Um, so this is kind of, as far as I understand, the last record where it's really a studio production and not at all what you, you may think when you look at the back cover and you know, see those four guys. It's not really them.
4: I, I was really I said, disappointed. I thought Peter played so well on this album. I was so <laughs> thrilled when I first heard it. You know, I, I thought, "Wow, Peter Chris is really doing well." And then they burst my bubble. I was devastated. Couldn't <laughs> tell the difference.
1: Uh, um, so, where does this record sit with you guys now? Like going back into, back and in listening to it now, about half the record I really like, and then about half of it is like really kind of subpar to me. And in, in reading about it, it seemed like Ace and... Especially Ace, but Ace and Peter were like, oh, we have a whole bunch of songs. And then that whole you guys aren't full members of the band thing came up. And it seemed like there were even like arguing, even though they were only like two years into that contract while they were making this record, that they were already starting to get into squabbles over who was... What roles and you know ownership of what and how much they were going to contribute and whatnot, um, Chris. Where you know listening back to this record and and comparing it to when you got it, do you have a favorable favorable opinion of uh, Psycho Circus or is it uh, on your latter half of the records in their catalog? Uh,
2: it, I mean, it's if you're it depends on what you're comparing it to. I mean, if you're comparing it to the the golden age from the seventies and the early eighties. Sure this falls towards the like the latter half of the catalog that I don't really like but if you just take the record for what it is as sort of like a modern take on throwback kiss I mean it's it's pretty it's got some good songs on there Yeah, you know, I like yeah you know, the title track and within especially I think is a great song but you know like I said towards the back half of the album it does start to get a little you know over the top cheesy with you know like i finally found my way and you i mean it's just they they just kind of cookie cutter songwriting with like you wanted the best and stuff like that it's just we'll take a phrase here and then build a song like a song around it and 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 that's it it's so it i mean it didn't it, it, and also if you're comparing it to like sonic boom and monster which came out in the 2000s let me tell you this is way better than those two albums so
1: Okay, I I like the any time a band puts rock and roll in the in the chorus or title of their song, I'm I'm on board. So like I like I pledge allegiance to the state of rock and roll because (laughs) that's all I want from a rock and that's like how many ACDC songs have rock and roll in the song title and chorus of their song. (laughs) Like you could probably just make an album of ACDC songs just that have rock and roll in them. So I'm on board, and I think that Into the Void is one of Ace's like, coolest songs. Like, that guitar riff that he has for that song is, is pretty awesome. So, I like, those are the songs that really stand out for me. Yeah, you're right about, like, You Wanted the Best is, like, clearly they were like, well, we have the phrase You Wanted the Best. We got to write a song around it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So. And let's have a song where all four guys are singing on it. You know, it's
0: like...
2: Oh, <laughs> man. I mean, So but formulaic. It's, like, sometimes it could be good, like, We Are One. If yeah. as... You know, typically schlock rock as it gets. Like, it's actually kind of catchy, and I like. I love "We Are One." That's (laughs) one of my favorite
3: tracks on the album.
1: Overall, you like the record or?
3: Overall, I like it, but like you guys, I'm kind of 50 50 on it. I think about half of it's really good, half of it's really awful, but I would go to reach for it to listen to over Psycho Circus, or rather Carnival of Souls, uh, more time, like nine times out of 10. You know, I mean, I just, I get more more enjoyment out of that record than I do say Carnival of Souls or some of their other albums.
0: Okay. I feel. Yeah. I felt so cheated oh, by ahead, this Jay. record. I felt so cheated by this record. I don't I don't know that I can evaluate it. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I like Psycho Circus. I like um Journey of a Thousand Years. I like Into the Void. I like We Are One. I think this is the record where they start to like I don't know, sing about themselves more, like you, you wanted the best and it, it, either themselves or like how hard they've worked and all the success they've had and like, uh, which starts to appear on the on the on the last couple of records as well and a lot of their stage banter and stuff is like, I don't know. Uh, it, it it strikes as like Paul Stanley's out of things to write songs about. <laughs> um, well, some. Uh, it's, it's almost like
3: Tim, you were asking this question too. It's almost like professional wrestling in a way where it's like the mystique, you, you know, it's fake, but the mystique of, uh, of that it actually might be real is sells better than the reality of what's going on. It's, it's a show, it's, it's a facade that's far more interesting than the actual behind the story of what's happening on it. And once you kind of find kind of like what Jay's saying, once you actually find out, what happened behind the story just kind of kills like, oh, well, geez, you know, this this isn't real. These aren't like all these four guys playing together. This isn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. And so that just kind of kills the mood on the album.
4: Mm-hmm. It takes the giant brass pair to put on songs like We Are One and You Wanted the Best on a fake reunion album. So, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. you know it, it took me years to get over being offended once I realized that it was not Peter and Ace and it wasn't like the monkeys getting together and living together in a house and making this reunion album that, you know, You go back to late 97 when they start talking about Psycho Circus and all the marketing. Everything's designed around marketing for the next tour and all the merchandise. So we knew about Psycho Circus. We knew about the comics. We knew that it was going to be the merchandise line for the next tour. Then we know it's going to be 3D. So you have a contrived song on there like Raise Your Glasses. And you have the Beth ripoff written that they couldn't even let. Peter write his own. Well, that's probably a good idea, but um, you know. It, and I finally found my way. So it, it, it's so contrived for me, though. For a reunion album, it was the wrong songs, the wrong producer, and the wrong band. It, it, it just not the right musicians on the album that it wasn't honest in any sense, but going back to what, you know, a lot of you guys have said, there are some good songs on it. And as cheesy as it is, we are one is up there. Journey of a thousand years is fantastic. And you know, it's Paul stuff that I have a problem with and uh, I'll go for the one that's got rock and roll in the title as well. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. Great point
0: about the marketing and a great point about the marketing and the lead up to all this. It was, that's what I was saying. Like it was so built out and planned and, um, calculated, was, you know? So when this came out, it was a big deal. It, it wasn't like uh, carnival souls where it just appeared on an end cap one day. And this was kind of a, a big production and the artwork, I mean the 3d cover, which was honestly a huge letdown. Once I saw it, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And I got the CD. And I was like, this is dumb. I don't get it. Like, <laughs> I can't see either of the two images very well. (laughs) Yeah, they're both blurry. It's like two images that are blurry. I don't get it.
3: Oh, plus there was that uh, the video that came out not long after that, too, which uh, had the bonus CD that had the uh, Ace Frehley song that didn't make the album, too. That was kind of another big, oh, here is this extra thing that when you're talking about the marketing.
0: And I remember, the, wasn't the Psycho Circus video kind of low? It, it looked a little, like, low budget, didn't it?
3: Oh, God, it was. Yes.
0: <laughs> it was, like, for, bad, for,
3: bad computer graphics.
0: Yeah, sure. it was weird. It was, like, you could tell they put a lot of money and thought into it. But in some ways, it, it ended up the final product coming across as, like, very cheap and chintzy in a weird way. You know what I mean? Like, the like it, the execution just wasn't right from the songs chosen to how they did the 3d cover to the final production of the videos to kind of everything it was just i don't know it was like a rough draft it didn't quite get completed correctly or something (laughs) like a prototype
1: well i think you hit it you know when you're talking about the marketing i mean it seems like it was a they had a marketing plan before they had an album and a and a visual idea for the out for the artwork and a visual idea for the you know the video like everything was built around this marketing plan and they only like was mentioned they had 5 year contracts so they knew they were dealing with like a limited window to deal with Peter and and uh, Ace in terms of not only putting out the record but then also touring on it so you know it maybe they this is all rushed is what the problem is is that maybe if they hadn't been dealing with that sort of a narrow of a window? Five years doesn't sound like a narrow window, but when you realize yeah. how much planning has to go into put together, a, you know, a world tour like that, and you know, all the months in the studio to make the record, and then all the stuff that goes involved in it, like it, that, shrinks real quick. So.
4: Yeah, you you can go on YouTube and see this video called uh, Kiss Marketing 1998. It's actually a, an official marketing tape that they put together, and it looks like more effort went into that than went into the Psycho Circus 3D video. And, and that and, and that you know shouldn't surprise anyone for Kiss because it was about what is our revenue streams for the next 24 months? How much can we get out of this? Uh, how little can we put in? It's business. It's you know that's why they didn't play the game with Peter and Ace during the recording. They just got on and did it without going down that road and then basically a bit of tokenism here's a here's a song for you to sing peter all right here's an extra bag of catnip and ace okay you can have that song on um so it it, it was all about the tour it was all about the merchandise it was the magazines the comics uh, the 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 action figures the oh the, the, the yeah those things
0: yeah, this is where the merchandising really, I mean, they had always been big in merchandising, especially in the 70s, but it seemed like to go to a whole other level during this time.
3: And yeah, um, you'd walk into a Spencer and half the store would be Kiss merchandise.
0: Yeah, and they hadn't done any, of I mean, really any of that in the 80s and even the early 90s, I mean, because yeah. they didn't have the makeup to to merchandise. So, yeah, it just it got insane.
4: You know, there was quite a delay. You know, don't forget the tour ends in July, Finsbury Park at 97, July 97. And it's September 98. That's a long gap when you've Mm -hmm. only got a five-year contract that you're not doing anything. They did not put out a live album from the reunion tour, which to me just boggles the mind as well. Second Coming doesn't come out until um, after Psycho Circus. So... They didn't really – they had a pretty big gap to fill that they thought the Psycho Circus album might fill, and it most certainly did not.
0: Is there any significance between uh, the titles Carnival of Souls and Psycho Circus? Like what – a carnival and a circus? What is there something – is this a concept that potentially they had been working on for a while or something?
4: Well, as far as, far as Psycho Circus, know. there certainly was. and Gene, Gene had the idea for Carnival of Souls as a title. But uh, okay. whether they whether they tie together any more so than just here's an idea that we're gonna do a psycho circus. Uh, that's our that's our audience. They're the psycho circus. Mm.
3: But they you know they were also definitely capitalizing on trying to get as much stuff out as they could in like that period from like ninety, from when the unplugged show and album comes out in '96. You got the unplugged album in '96. You got the. Um, odds and sods live album you wanted the best you got the best that came out in 96 you've got the all the remasters coming out in 97 you got carnival of souls thrown out in 97 you got kiss greatest hits thrown out in 97 and there were various versions of that like what the cover looked like and what the track listing looked like depending on which country you were in uh and then psycho circus in 97 so or rather 98 so that's quite a bit of product in just like Three years time that they just unleashed on the masses
0: yeah i remember feeling as a fan who was like really into the reunion and some of the merchandising i do remember seeing that you wanted the best and the greatest hits coming out it seemed like within months of each other at the time as being really i don't know but <laughs> it did not excite me as a fan for them to be releasing that that stuff um that much greatest hits material after the, uh, around the, the tour, it was like, okay, let's, let's get some new music. What do you guys do? <laughs> like, right. I'm a Kiss fan. I own all these records already. I don't need another copy of, you know, rock and roll all night. I'm, I'm all
4: good. <laughs> you wanted the best as a good as a good one to kind of mention. I mean, I was excited that here was an uh, an album coming out specifically tied to reunion, all that unreleased stuff from the live albums, and then you go in and listen to it, and it's uh, got Paul redoing the vocals and ruining and great seventies tracks, and then you got a twenty minute interview with Jay Leno, which I, I can't think of anything worse. Oh, to, Jesus, on on a, on a piece of product, and then in in Europe where I was living, by December '96 is when we get uh, Greatest Kiss which I thought was fantastic, because it was a sampler for the remasters, which hadn't come out or wouldn't come out for nearly another year. So I like Greatest Kiss better than You Wanted the Best, which just, again, it's a very strange thing to say that I like a compilation better than something that had unreleased live recordings in the 70s, because they ruined them.
3: And Julian, uh, you could probably correct me on this, but wasn't was it still called Greatest Kits in England? Because I thought it had a slightly different title, but the, the album cover artwork was completely different, had a different song listing, and it was is actually much better artwork than we got here in the States. I know like the Japanese version had
4: extra tracks, but
3: I, yeah. I had gotten a UK version of the album that was quite different from the American version.
4: Complete, completely different albums. Greatest Kiss came out in the UK as an album, like with the same ugly cover as everywhere else. And then Greatest Hits came out, which was essentially the same track listing, but I think they threw Crazy Nights on there, um, yeah. with, the, with the white cover and the, the full yeah. Cover. That came out to, um, in July of 97, to coincide with the end of the tour as a special England-only release.
3: Right, it had all the little uh, makeup logos in the... Um Spine of the C D, like the, yeah. the little, yeah, that was really cool.
4: Yeah, I, I liked that album, even though it was just again the same thing I'd basically bought the year before, but uh yeah. I, because it was specific to England at the time, I thought it was really neat. So let me
1: ask you guys, how many of you in nineteen ninety nine went to your local movie theater to see Detroit Rock City? Anybody? I did. I did. <laughs> you did. Did I Absolutely. go with you, Jay?
4: <laughs> Probably, I with, yeah.
1: I might have gone with you. I don't remember.
4: Yeah, I waited for the
2: VHS tape. (laughs) I've still never seen it myself. So,
1: well, it's okay. Yeah, it's not terrible. I mean, it's it's not the greatest thing.
2: It was just around that time where you know with the marketing, they they were just everywhere, and it just got to be a big turnoff to me. Where you you walk into the mall or you turn on your TV or whatever with the Kiss Demon the wrestler that kisses just oh, everywhere geez. and it just gets to be too much after a while it's like man yeah i like these guys but you're yeah, wearing it, out you're welcome exactly
0: i forgot about the wrestler
4: what year was that
2: 99 uh, uh, yeah. 99 oh, yeah yeah it was
4: august 99 i think
2: yeah it was when wcw was just uh, they were going way downhill and they were Trying to, They were just burning money left and right, and were just trying to look for something to get their ratings back up, and for some reason they thought the Kiss Demon would be a good idea, and they threw a bunch of money at Kiss to have their character and for Kiss to play live on TV, which, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's kind of why WCW's out of business now, so... In so,
4: 1999, Kiss goes from being a buzz to being a major hangover with that that movie. You know, we were promised like a new song. Um, that the band were going to do. Paul Stanley was going to write something for the uh, for the uh, the soundtrack, and, and that excited me. And then you start seeing parts of the script. And that's that's why I, I didn't go to it because it, it just did not appeal in any sense. Uh, I got to hear like the Detroit Rock City 1998 recording early on when they'd uh, finished that in the studio. And that made me more excited than Psycho Circus because it was actually all four guys playing together. And I was like, okay, great. They can still play. What but was that-,
0: that for? What was that? I remember that. What was that for?
4: that that was for the soundtrack of right. of uh, it was supposed to be on the soundtrack as an independent song instead they only used it in the movie in the ending sequence right. uh, o- overlaid right. with all the explosions and everything uh, but right. the, the the one they they cut in the studio has a black diamond uh, ending it's like 6 minutes long it's really neat it should have been on the box set actually And that
3: the track that they did, the one new track that they did end up doing for that album, I forget the name of it, but that it's a ballad.
4: Nothing, nothing can keep me from. Oh my god! So
3: awful! It's so awful! It's like Diane Warren at her worst. It's just
4: terrible. (laughs) Again, it was it was mimicking something that had already been done, you know. Armageddon had come out and yep. I don't wanna miss a thing and it was it was not original. Paul couldn't muster writing his own song, sadly. Or he li- I think Diane said uh, that he just liked it and he was fine with it and didn't wanna, you know, do anything which kind of speaks if Paul Stanley doesn't want to do something, he's just not motivated to do it which is very sad considering you know that that they could have fixed the problem of psycho circus on the soundtrack by having a song with all four original members playing but i guess it was too late the relationships are too far gone
1: so this takes us to the end of the 90s it would be 11 years i believe and when we get the next actual studio album uh sonic broom in 2009 there were a whole host of uh, you know live albums and compilations the kiss symphony alive 4 would come out a couple years after in, in 2003 and there would be the um, millennium collection starting in in volume 1 in 2003 and then there's another one in 2004 and then another one in 2006 there's the box set the box comes set. out in 2001 so it's a lot of repackaging, a lot of digging into the archives. Um has anybody purchased the, the the latest the producer uh whatever that ridiculous thing is where Gene shows up at your house and gives you the oh, key the to vault? something, the vault? Yeah, what is that? No. Is it...
3: <laughs> I have not, but uh the guy who one of the guys who is like a who goes out there with him and is helping him out with all the promotion. His name is Keith Balgort. He's an old friend of mine. He used to work for uh, EMD. He used to be my EMD label rep when I was working in a music store. So
4: He's a really, he's a really cool guy, and I, I will hold yeah. up my hand and say, yes, I have purchased the Vault Experience because I am an utter sheep. I actually like Gene's demos, so I can't wait to get my hand on uh, 150 of them, even if I don't need him to give them to me personally.
1: <laughs> so how does that work? So... Is it just a – is there different levels of what you're buying into –
4: um, yeah, this is like this is like QVC, you know, at your entry level, two thousand dollars, you can go drive to uh, Gene Simmons Vault Experience where he will hand over the vault to you in person, or for twenty five thousand, you can purchase a producer experience. I, I, those are all gone now uh, as they run out of time, but you'd go into a studio with Gene and basically he'd make you feel like you're helping make decisions um, about the vault. And I I think what they they got to do was basically choose what version of one song was going to be on it. And then for $50,000, Gene will come to your home and deliver your vault in person for, I think it was you and 20 of your friends. And he'll sign autographs and maybe pick up a guitar. And Keith, I hope I got that right, because (laughs) GeneSimmonsVault.com. I should get a free free vault for doing that. You should. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: should. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That is... Ridiculous, that is ridiculous. Um, so when we get to the end of our uh, discussion of a band in the '90s, we like to try to figure out um how they how well they navigated the decade, um, whether they uh, forged their own path and and came out successful on the other end, or whether the the tides the shifting tides of the musical landscape. Uh, Overwhelmed them and and brought them down from our discussion. It seems like Kiss just motored on and sort of, I I guess, sort of, you know, reoriented themselves uh, midway through the decade with the reunion. And then um, from a financial standpoint, seemed to get back on their feet uh, with regards to the reunion tour, maybe not in terms of album sales, but in terms of uh, concert ticket sales. And are, are still going strong. So I'm curious as to what you guys think in terms of um, this decade. While it's slowed down in terms of afterwards, uh, albums, they've only done two albums in the last, I guess, 19 years. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, because it's 2017. So, um, for a band that was pretty... They were doing an album a year, essentially, for a long time sometimes two, like in uh, 76 uh, or 74. Did the 90s uh, have a negative or a positive effect on the band? Chris, I'll start with you. What do you think?
2: I think when they finally figured out that they could be more successful when they turned back the clock to what the, what made them big originally and they kind of, kind of cashed in on the reunion, that's when they really started to get their footing again because they, it, they really weren't having too much success finding new fans you know, early in the nineties. And so I think that when the nostalgia did start to ramp up a little bit and people kind of got in the hunger again for seeing kiss and makeup with all the original members, they figured, oh, okay, well, I guess we can just, we'll see if we can make this work and give the fans what they want. And so they, they did turn it around. And I think they came out on top when they, uh, when is all when all said and done in the nineties, although, you know, you think back to you know, like Bruce and Bruce Kulik and Eric Singer, I mean, they kinda got left by the wayside unfortunately, but as kind of casualties of you know, what made KISS popular when going back to that, so right. they were they probably didn't make out too well. I mean, Eric Singer, he's back in the band now, so but they didn't make out too well but the rest of the guys pretty much did.
1: Joe, what do you think about how the uh the band navigated the 90s. Positive or negative? Well,
2: I think it was positive. They were
3: kind of teed up uh, at the beginning of the decade to for success because all of a sudden you have all these... When grunge hits, you've got all these bands who grew up being KISS fans coming of age, forming their own bands. So, you know, there was a huge influence of KISS on them. you got bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. You know, Nirvana did a a song on a KISS tribute album. uh, Mike McCready and Pearl Jam is a big KISS fan. What is it? The uh, solo on um, Alive is pretty much the Ace Frehley solo from She. Uh, You've got, you know, all these other bands that are... Giving Kiss as a reference, like the Melvins, even bands like Weezer and Pantera, who are you know saying you know Weezer's dropping a reference to Kiss in their song. You got Pantera, Dimebag Daryl, huge Kiss fan, so they kind of teed it up to make a comeback for Kiss, and then Kiss kind of sees it, takes advantage of it, but you know by the end of the decade, they kind of overstayed their welcome a bit. I think I think the '90s was really good to Kiss, and if you were a Kiss fan, the '90s was really good to you.
1: Okay, that's an interesting take. I had, I you know, I forgot about how many bands and even people we've interviewed who have mentioned Kiss as being an influence. Whether it's Dale Crover from the Melvins or Kelly Scott from, you know, Failure, a, a lot of people that we've talked to who you would not think when listening to their bands are Kiss fans, but. They're always talking about that's the first record they picked up or that's the first album that they drummed to when they were learning to play drums. So,
3: right. And plus, yeah. uh, I we didn't get to I didn't get to mention it back when we were talking about, but the unplugged performance is one of my favorite live Kiss performances ever. That's my go-to example if somebody says, "Oh, Kiss is only about the makeup and the show and stuff." that's the thing I point them to said, no, this is where you can appreciate them as actual musicians and songwriters. And, you know, and see that they, they did actually have the goods. They they could back it up and strip back.
1: Julian, what do you think about the nineties for kiss? I,
4: I, I think they embraced creative death in favor of financial reward. Um, it, it, I'm still in a, in a place where I was in, you know, 1996 with the reunion that I was excited about the prospect of seeing the original band and makeup, um, <clears throat> But I was also very depressed that it, it seemed that they were going for the nostalgia instead of music. But I think they come out ahead. I think they, they go through the reunion and they really, the, you know, it was the number one tour of that year. So without a doubt, it allowed a lot of people who had been there in the 70s to re- relive that experience. And for a lot of us who hadn't been there in the 70s to experience it for the first time. So, you know, it's not surprising that they've ridden the coattails. So, you know, by the end of the decade, I'd say more power to them. They've, uh, they proved with Psycho Circus that they couldn't be a, a functioning creative unit. And it would take them, you know, quite a few years to give it another shot. So... Uh, you Know they came out okay, revenge hadn't worked, so they did what they had to,
2: right?
1: Jay, lastly, I'm gonna wrap it up with you. What do you think?
0: Oh, uh, the, the 90s are so complicated for Kiss.
1: Um, are they more complicated than Van Halen?
0: It's a very similar story to me. Um, although, uh, I think Kiss has more emerged more successfully because. Even though I think Julian put it best, they they sort of let their creativity die. Uh, that that aspect of the band is gone, which is is sad. And in another way, they're sort of came out the other side. Eternal, like they've been able to maintain the brand and the characters and the concept enough that you know it still is something that people you know they get new fans now. You know, kids are. Go and see them live, or go on the cruise, or whatever, and you know are getting into the band just as much now as they were in the '90s, the '80s, and the '70s. So, in that regard, when you compare them to Van Halen, there's no comparison. I mean, Van Halen is barely a blip on the radar anymore in terms of what the that band means. Um, so, in that regard, it's it's sort of you know sad that they had to go that way to make it happen, but I think that's just the way it had to be. That's um, complicated because I, I would like to see them. I would have liked to see them, you know, get the band back together and still be creative with the concept, the original concept. Like push it further and see what else other things you can do with it and explore uh, new paths with the the original concept and the original members. But that's a little naive, I guess. Uh, it, it just wasn't meant to be. So, in that way, it's um, it was exhilarating to finally see them, you know, reunited. The original members. I got to, you know, go to the tour and, and see it. And for me, it was kind of a a little bit of closure, I guess, um, in that I'd anticipated it for so long, you know, being a, a, a not being able to see the band uh, in that incarnation for, I don't know, what was it, 20 years at that point? Um, and to finally see it, it was kind of like, OK, I can I can say that I've done this now. Um, and then since then, it's just been, you know, I, I still keep track of the band. Um, but, you know, uh, it's it's not quite the same in terms of the creativity.
1: No, and I, I, from that timeline where I mentioned that they hadn't, they only put out two records in almost twenty years. It's definitely the the output is suffering. So I need to thank everybody who has joined for this episode. Uh, we went a little long. That's okay. Um, Julian, I know you got in late, but thank you so much for contributing to this episode. This was a lot of fun, and I want to tell people where they can go: www kissfaq.com They can also go to your podcast, which is at podomatic.com I believe, is that correct?
4: Yeah, our podcast is like a virus it's all over the place, you can okay. find it on Spreaker, on Podomatic, on YouTube and on iTunes
1: Excellent, and then you have a whole bunch of books that people can check out, Jay was telling me about uh, the specifically the one on The Elder, he was, it was his yes. beach read earlier this year on vacation and uh, i'm looking forward to reading that and because uh, that's always been an album that i've been intrigued by since uh i got into kiss so thank you so much for uh for taking some time out of your sunday evening and and joining us
4: well thank you for having me on the show and also answering the phone when i was tardy appreciate that
1: <laughs> uh joe of sit and spin with joe thanks for coming back once again joe i'll be sending you our uh 2018 through 2023 rod table lists that you can uh, start planning your next uh <laughs> seven years
3: <laughs> excellent thanks for having me back again and people appreciate can, it as always
1: absolutely and people can find you at facebook youtube twitter all of the uh the online places where one would find you. And it's, yeah, Instagram, all those places. Instagram, yeah. all the places. I always forget about Instagram since it's a <laughs> it's a picture instead of a yeah. uh, audio outlet. Uh,
3: but there there actually is video on there now, so
1: oh, that's right. that's right. yep yeah. That's what the kids the insta with the kids. Uh, and Chris, yeah, I have nothing to plug for you, but thank you for coming back and thank you for suggesting this. Jay is very happy right now. There's a big, he has a big grin on his face.
0: I can finally quit the show. I can finally quit the show.
1: Quit the show. <laughs> Seven years now, I, I'm done. He's, can, <laughs> he's, he's out of his contract. We're, we're moving on to the replacement now. So I got uh, to give Bruce Kulik a call, see what he's up to. Is he, is he going to wear go.
0: makeup? You're just going to yeah. put some other guy in makeup? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm
1: going to slap a goatee on him, and uh, he's going to take over. So I uh, want to remind everybody... Uh, Patreon is where you go to become a patron of this podcast, patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback at iTunes for Jay and Tim. We're done. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out.
0: Thanks for listening to support the podcast. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.